welcome to the first mini episode of the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. Today's episode is called Pregnancy is Different, because in every one of these pregnancy discrimination cases in the 1970s, we see the Burger Court struggle time and time again to see how pregnancy discrimination is a function of sex discrimination. Because in the minds of these justices, pregnancy is different. At the same time that Ginsburg was bringing the sex equality cases that we've been focusing on in this podcast, the Supreme Court also heard a number of pregnancy discrimination cases. Although Ginsburg didn't argue any of those cases before the Supreme Court, she and the ACLU Women's Rights Project filed amicus briefs in many of those cases. The pregnancy discrimination cases are an important piece of the puzzle in seeking to understand the ways in which the Burger Court advanced sex equality and also the ways that it didn't. Because as we're learning on the podcast, as a result of Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's effort, the Burger Court dismantled law after law distinguishing between men and women. In case after case, except for Kahn, of course, the conservative Burger Court showed a surprising willingness to extend the Equal Protection Clause to apply to sex equality. This is especially surprising given that the liberal Warren Court really did not understand how the Equal Protection Clause had anything to do with women's equality under law. But we have to remember that the Burger Court's advances fell far short of true equality. Pregnancy discrimination cases are one context in which the court's failure to see full equality within the meaning of the Equal Protection Clause is most clear. The court heard five cases challenging laws discriminating against pregnant women in the workplace in the 1970s. And probably the most interesting case was the one that they never decided, Struck. Struck versus Secretary of Defense. In 1970, Captain Susan Struck was serving in the Air Force in Vietnam when she got pregnant. The Air Force's policy was to give female military service members an abortion at the base at the hospital. As a Catholic, Strzok did not want to have an abortion, so she decided to use her accrued medical leave and vacation days to return to Washington State to have the child and to put the child up for adoption. She then planned to return to military service. But that was an impossibility. The military had a rule that any woman officer who gave birth to a, quote, living child must be decommissioned, even if, as in Strzok's case, the child had been adopted. The military's policy was essentially, if you're pregnant, you're out, unless you have an abortion. Strzok challenged the military's rule in the Western District of Washington as unconstitutional, and she lost. The Ninth Circuit affirmed, ruling that the military's policy was constitutional. Enter Ginsburg. Ginsburg had just founded the ACLU Women's Rights Project and she discovered this case as an apt illustration of the many double-edged swords operating against women. I mean, how could you not? It's really hard to make this stuff up. For one, no man is ever ordered out of the military because he was the partner in a conception, like the father of Strzok's baby in this case. And men with similarly temporary conditions, including alcoholism, were not automatically terminated in the same way. Rather, they were permitted to take medical leave and then return to military service. What is more, automatic involuntary discharge of a pregnant officer denied her her career and her ability to support herself, which is a really big problem when you have a new baby. And it's the height of hypocrisy 
that the government is impeding on a woman's own choice of whether to bear a child, a violation of her liberty, and in this case, her religious belief. The Supreme Court would have decided struck the same term that it decided Roe v. Wade in 1972. And I'm hoping to do another mini-episode on Roe and the reproductive freedom cases of the 1970s, which interweave with these cases in very interesting ways. But with the encouragement of the Solicitor General, Erwin Griswold, who happened to be Ginsburg's dean at Harvard Law School, the military granted Strzok an exemption, allowing her to remain in the service. She became the first member of the U.S. Armed Forces to give birth. Does Griswold sound familiar? Remember that he's Ginsburg's dean when she starts Harvard Law School. He's that dean who made every woman in the class go around and explain why she took the spot of a man. Because Strzok was granted an exemption, in no small part due to the urging of Ginsburg's former dean and then Solicitor General Erwin Griswold, the case was mooted, and how it would have affected the way that the court viewed constitutional issues raised by abortion and mandatory leave requirements due to pregnancy we will never know. But the case certainly made its mark on Ginsburg, and she spoke about it at her confirmation proceedings when she was nominated to serve on the Supreme Court. She talked about why this case was so compelling. Here's what she said. Three strands were involved. Her equality right, her right to decide for herself whether she was going to bear the child, and her religious belief. So it was never an either-or matter, one rather than the other. It was always a recognition that the one thing that conspicuously distinguishes women from men is that only women become pregnant. And if you subject a woman to disadvantageous treatment on the basis of pregnant status, which was what was happening to Captain Strzok, you would be denying her equal treatment under the law. The decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a woman's life, to her well-being and dignity. It is a decision that she must make for herself. When the government controls that decision for her, she's being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for her own choices. I think Ginsburg's passionate statements about Strzok at her confirmation hearing undermine this common narrative behind the so-called Ginsburg rule, which is this idea that she set the precedent about refusing to comment on pending cases or cases that could come before the court, and that every judicial nominee has then followed in her footsteps, followed the Ginsburg rule, which we saw most recently with the Kavanaugh hearings. There are definitely other instances in Ginsburg's confirmation hearing where she declined to comment on future cases. But as, but as you just heard, Ginsburg spoke passionately about the right to an abortion, about the freedom to choose. And that's something that very few Supreme Court nominees would be willing to speak about today. It's hard to know what would have happened if the court had heard struck instead of Roe, both for women's equality in the political branches and the judicial branches. Many scholars have speculated that if the struck case had reached a decision instead of Roe, the march towards full reproductive freedom would have been slower and provoked less political fragmentation. It's a fun historical and academic exercise to think through all the different ways that uh, the Supreme Court could have heard struck and what that could have meant for women's equality. But we should just move on and talk about this pregnancy discrimination cases that actually did reach the Supreme Court in the 1970s. There's a pair of really interesting cases from the 1970s that fit under the umbrella of pregnant teachers cases. Cleveland Board of Education versus Lafleur 
and Cohen v. Chesterfield County School Board. These cases concerned mandatory unpaid maternity leave for pregnant teachers, which were very common in public school systems. Many schools required pregnant teachers to leave the classroom with very draconian restrictions. Teachers were required to leave months before they were due, often five months or more, were not paid leave, were required to stay the home for many months after giving birth, also without pay, were given no guarantee that they could reclaim their jobs, and could not return to work without certification from their doctors. Think about this as the one, two, three, four punch of pregnancy, taking you out of the workforce. These pregnant teachers' policies were emblematic of deeply ingrained notions about pregnancy and about women's ability to give birth. There's the good old assumption that we're confronting in all of these cases that woman's place is in the home. Then there's the assumption that women, and in particular pregnant women, were too fragile to work. And then there's the notion that pregnancy is something that must be hidden, particularly from children. In Cleveland, Ohio, pregnant teachers were required to take leave at least five months before their due date and could not return until the semester following their child's three-month birthday. They were also given no guarantee that they could return to their jobs. Carol Jo LaFleur and Anne Elizabeth Nelson were teachers in Cleveland public schools. They gave birth during the summertime, so they were out of work for nearly a year. And they challenged the law. The Sixth Circuit ruled for the plaintiffs under the Equal Protection Clause. The court relied on Reed v. Reed, that case we learned about in the first episode of the Ginsburg Tapes, about the Idaho law that required men to be preferred to women in the administration of estates. And the court took that case as a recognition from the Supreme Court that classifications based on sex should be looked at closely by courts. And the Sixth Circuit reasoned that the mandatory leave policies for pregnant teachers was inherently based on the classification by sex. The Supreme Court took the case, and it joined it with the similar challenge to the law in Chesterfield County, Virginia. But unlike the Sixth Circuit, the Supreme Court was not convinced that this is a sex classification. Because according to the Supreme Court, pregnancy is different. The court ruled 7-2 in favor of the teachers, but remarkably, the court totally ignored the Equal Protection Clause. Not once did the court draw a line between pregnancy discrimination to sex discrimination. It's not that hard, guys. Only women can get pregnant. A law that discriminates against pregnant women discriminates against women. The, the court's opinion was written by Justice Potter Stewart. The court held that the mandatory leave policy violated the teacher's due process rights. The court reasoned that it was arbitrary and irrational that the policy baked in an irrebuttable presumption that each teacher had to take so many months off. Some teachers might need that much time off, some didn't, so it violated their due process rights by just applying one policy to all teachers. The court wrote, There are some women who could be physically unable to work past the particular cutoff dates embodied in the challenge rule. Justice Stewart wrote, Pregnancy is different in kind from other disabilities and may be treated separately. Pregnancy is different. The majority really strained to see this case as a due process case when every court that came before it saw it as an equal protection case. And there's a really surprising turn of events. 
only one justice saw this case for what it was as an equal protection case. Justice Powell. This is the same Justice Powell who concurred in Frontiero because the plurality opinion was too women's lib for his liking. He wrote in his concurrence that equal protection is the appropriate frame of reference. But this is Justice Powell. This is not our favorites, Justice Brennan or Justice Marshall. So of course he's not as woke to this stuff as we want him to be. And in a footnote, he notes that he was not reaching the question of whether strict scrutiny applies to sex-based classifications, or even whether this is a sex classification. Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project wrote an amicus brief in this case. The author of this brief is unmistakable, and the language familiar. Until very recent years, jurists have regarded any discrimination in the treatment of pregnant women as benignly in their favor. But in fact, Refusal to permit capable, healthy, pregnant women to continue working drastically curtails women's economic opportunities. Even an amicus brief filed by the Nixon administration under Solicitor General Robert Bork saw this as an equal protection case. Yes, that's the Robert Bork you're thinking about. That's the Robert Bork whose later nomination to the Supreme Court was famously rejected because he was seen as a far-right conservative. The Bork amicus brief recognize that mandatory leave policies work as sex discrimination in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. And I'm going to paraphrase another really interesting part of their brief. The suggestion has been advanced that because there are no pregnant men, pregnancy rules cannot be deemed to discriminate on the basis of sex. On the contrary, precisely because pregnancy is a condition unique to women, treating the pregnant less favorably is, at least presumptively, a discrimination based on sex. The upshot is that women, who alone are subject to pregnancy, are denied equal employment opportunity by any rule which treats pregnancy as a disqualification for work. This is from the Nixon administration. I'm just really surprised by this brief, and I also think it shows just how far the Supreme Court had to strain to make this a due process case. You know what else is crazy about this pregnant teacher's case? The court decided it one day before the one-year anniversary of Roe. Like this case, the court decided Roe based on the Due Process Clause, not the Equal Protection Clause. And I think it's really remarkable that the same court, the same nine justices, that ruled confidently six to three on the right to abortion, struggled so much to see how pregnancy was a function of sex. The court decided two other pregnancy discrimination cases around this time and both dealt with insurance exclusions for disabilities arising from pregnancy. The court had decided the pregnant teacher's case in January 1974, and it heard oral argument in another pregnancy discrimination case two months later, Gedaldig v. Aelo. The case concerned a disability insurance program for private employees in California. Participation in the program was mandatory unless the employees had a different plan that was approved by the state. If an employee who contributed to the fund got a qualifying temporary disability, they would receive weekly payments for lost wages. But pregnancy-related disabilities were excluded from the policy. Not like pregnancy itself, but disabilities arising from pregnancy. But the plan covered almost any other temporary illness, including vasectomies and hair transplants. <laughs> hair transplants! California defended the exclusion on the ground that it would cost too much, but the district court struck it down. 
it held that the exclusion of pregnancy-related disabilities is not based on a classification having a rational and substantial relation to a legitimate state purpose. The district court reasoned that the program was funded by the contributions of employees, so any increased costs could be accommodated quite easily by making reasonable changes in the contribution rate, the maximum benefits allowable, and other variables affecting the solvency of the program. But the Supreme Court reversed. Just as in the pregnant teachers' cases, the Supreme Court did not see how this exclusion amounted to sex discrimination. And Justice Potter Stewart again wrote the majority opinion. He reasoned that excluding pregnancy was not a sex-based classification. And he also reasoned that California had a rational basis for the policy because it would require employees to contribute more in order for the policies to stay solvent. Justice Potter Stewart wrote that the case is a far cry from cases like Reed v. Reed and Frontiero because the California Insurance Program does not exclude anyone from benefit eligibility because of gender, but merely removes one physical condition, pregnancy, from the list of compensable disabilities. Justice Brennan wrote a dissent that was joined by Douglas and Marshall. Justice Brennan wrote that Reed v. Reed and Frontiero mandate a stricter standard of scrutiny that the state's classification fails to satisfy. He emphasized that California's interest in fiscal integrity could have achieved in a myriad of different ways. As an example, Justice Brennan explained that the entire cost estimated by the defendant could be met by requiring workers to contribute an additional amount of approximately 0.364% of their salary and increasing the maximum annual contribution by about $119. Then there's one other similar case in the private context. This was in 1976, and the case did not involve the Equal Protection Clause because it involved a disability plan offered by General Electric. The plan offered 60% of weekly earnings and a little over six months off for temporary illnesses, but it excluded complications due to pregnancy. Several GE employees challenged the exclusion and argued that it violated Title VII. The employees won in the district court and in the Fourth Circuit, and other courts of appeals also ruled in favor of employees challenging similar exclusions. All of these courts had basically the same reasoning. The California insurance case does not apply to this case since this is in the private context. And once again in this case, the conservative Bork Solicitor General Office urged the court to strike down the exclusion but the Supreme Court disagreed with all of the courts that came before it. Justice Rehnquist wrote for six justices, who all reasoned that Godaldig is on point because it held that exclusion of pregnancy from a disability benefits plan is not sex-based discrimination. Ginsburg called this decision a disaster, and the New York Times described it with the headline, Women's Rights Movement is Dealt a Major Blow. Years later, Ginsburg reflected on the court's decision in this trio of pregnancy cases, and she pointed out a really obvious inconsistency in the way that the court saw these cases. She said, perhaps the able pregnant woman seeking only to do a day's work for a day's pay is a sympathetic figure before the court, while the woman disabled by pregnancy is suspect. And it really seemed like in all of these cases that the Supreme Court was incapable of seeing pregnancy discrimination as sex discrimination, meriting analysis under the Equal Protection Clause. Because these justices saw pregnancy as different. They couldn't see any problems with codifying physical differences between men and women into a system of American law. 
They couldn't see how laws would shut pregnant women and new moms out of the workplace and into the home served to solidify centuries-old stereotypes that women belonged in the home. They couldn't see how disability insurance that excluded pregnancy-related disabilities, but not similarly temporary disabilities incurred by men, including vasectomies and hair transplants, was thinly disguised discrimination against women, against mothers, enforcing the notion that they belonged in the home. In the words of Justice Potter Stewart, pregnancy was different. So how did this trio of pregnancy discrimination cases fit in with Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's quest for equality under law? As we'll see in future episodes covering Ginsburg's oral arguments, these same justices really came around to seeing how other types of laws distinguishing between men and women operate to exclude both sexes from equal participation in the economy and American life we'll see this same Supreme Court show a real willingness to strike down laws discriminating on the basis of sex, such as the unequal benefits for military service members in Frontiero, or unequal treatment of widowed mothers and fathers, or unequal requirements for service on juries. And for the first time, the Supreme Court is really recognizing how laws discriminating against women serve to hold them back. And I think that it's just really interesting to see how the Burger Court is simultaneously advancing sex equality under the Equal Protection Clause and really failing to understand the way that pregnancy discrimination operates in American life. Thanks for listening to this mini episode. If you liked the episode, it'd be a huge help if you could rate, review it, and share it with a friend. You've probably noticed that there are no ads on this podcast. This is just a passion project, but I'm hoping that people who would enjoy the show find out about it so they can listen. For behind-the-scenes updates on what's going on in the Ginsburg Tapes, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ginsburg Tapes. I'll be back in a few weeks to break down Ginsburg's oral argument in Edwards v. Healy, which is about women's duty to serve on juries. Until then, I hope everyone has a great Valentine's Day, and I'll talk to you soon.